Houston and the beauty that we wake up to. And God, it's mornings like this that it's hard for any of us to say that we have a bad morning because it's so beautiful outside. And God, we're thankful for all the things that you've given us, all the beauty that surrounds us, that shows us your awesomeness and your majesty and your greatness. God, we're thankful for this church, and we're so thankful for this family here at Dalreda. We're thankful for this time of Bible study that we can gather together, that we can open up your word and study from it, and hopefully garner something that we can apply to our lives and challenge us to become more faithful and more dedicated, that we as Christians will continue our focus on you and, and all the things that you have planned for us. Lord, we ask that you be with me as I teach this class this quarter. And we talk about the importance and the significance and the wonderful ability we have to be in Christ. And God, we ask that you be with us through the study and help us to be able to take something from your word that will apply to our personal lives and, and help us to be more dedicated in our examples and our living. God, we're so thankful for Christ and we're so thankful for the sacrifice that he gave on the cross of Calvary and it's through his name that we pray. Amen. As we've talked about what to study this quarter, I tossed out a couple of different uh, options and ideas. One is a study that I have been wanting to do for a long time, and it's funny that uh, Mark Davidson and I, uh, as we, we study and we, we teach the college class along with David Baker, this concept of in Christ is one that we have kind of wanted to do a study on for a while, and, and so I'm very excited to be able to do that this week, to be able to uh, start this study, and uh, one that I am going to adapt from a series of outlined lessons that uh, my father's spiritual mentor, uh, Paul Vining, who was a preacher down in the, the Huntsville area, actually did. So I'm kind of excited about that too. It's kind of neat to get someone else's notes and adapt those to, uh, to use in the present day. But the study of in Christ to me is something that is challenging because it's used so many different times in the New Testament. And so what I want to do is really break apart this phrase, this in Christ phrase, to help us as we kind of think about what our identity might be with regard to being in Christ and, and really what our lives should have as a part of us because we experience this place, this special position of importance of, of being in Christ. And, and really what I want to do more than anything is start off with this question for you, and that's going to be, who are you? Who are you? What are we defined by? Is it our jobs sometimes? Is it our families? Is it where you've been in life, maybe where you've lived, or, or maybe what team you tend to root for? You know, what defines who you are as an individual and as a person? Is it the, the, the choices that you've made in life? Is it your family? Is it your children? Is it your parents? You know, when someone asks you this question, who are you, what do you immediately go to in your mind about who you are? Is it your mistakes? Have they defined you? Do they become who you are? Or is it your dreams and your hopes and those things which are far off possibly in the future that you see that, that you have dreams for? Is it your husband? Is it your wife? You know, who are you? Well, as we go through this study... I hope that that phrase in Christ becomes the defining identity and characteristic of who you are, hopefully as a Christian. 
We'll talk about the hopefully in this lesson of how you get in Christ. But as a Christian and, and as an individual living day to day, living in Christ can be our ultimate identity because it gives so many different characteristics and so many different things and levels of, of mental thinking about the, identifying who we are in our lives. So as we go through this study in this series this quarter in the auditorium, I, I want to challenge you to, to really consider and think about who are you? Who are you? What defines and identifies you as an individual? Are they spiritual things? Are they physical things? Are they material things? Because as Christians, we should always be pushing and striving for that spiritual level of application in our lives. I'm not saying the the physical things around us don't impact us. They do. Uh, I think it's impossible to not see how the physical decisions we make or our jobs or our families and our, our, our mistakes can impact our lives. And I, I do think they become maybe a portion of, of who we are, but should they really be that which defines us? Should that be ultimately when someone says, who are you, John Cackleman? Who are you? That you automatically go toward that. You know, too often, we think about what, what we are involved in as being the identifying aspect of us. I remember when I, I started college at Freed Hardeman, uh, one of the first things that you do there is decide whether or not you want to be a part of a social club or not. Social clubs are like fraternities and sororities at Freed Hardeman, but the guys and girls are together. They're not separate. It's very odd. For those of you who've gone to other schools, it's just different when you have guys and girls in a club together. You still have guy things you do. You have girl things you do, but you're just really in one club. And, and so you go to these mixers. You go to these social things to, to try and figure out which group do you want to be a part of? Which group do you want to be in? And so you, you, you choose that group that you want to be in, and you ultimately start going to all these the prerequisite things to go to. Uh, it's kind of like they call it Pledge Week, and uh, it's not Thankfully, half as bad as what you hear goes on in some of the state schools. Uh, you're really doing service projects. You're going to do group activities. You know, they want you to do this and want you to do that. You're not getting haze, thank goodness. But you're, you're really striving and making a concerted effort to be a part of this group. You really want to be in this club. And so you are doing everything you can to get in this club. And that's exactly what I did when I wanted to be a part of Kai Beta Kai which is the, the social club I wanted to be a part of. And I chose that group, and I did everything that I was supposed to be doing to check off my checklist to be a part of this group, this social club at Freed Hardeman's campus. And, and thankfully, uh, I was able to do so. And once I got in that club, it became a, an identifying characteristic. Brother Earl and others who go to Freed Hardeman know that on Thursdays, they wear jerseys. You go around campus, you cannot help but see who individuals are based upon their club colors as they walk around campus. I guess, did they still do that or not? I don't know. They do? Okay. So, you know, you have this identification that's automatically uh, put to you. And it's interesting that the prejudice forms at that point because you're in a certain group, therefore you're of this kind of mentality or this kind of thing. And, and those of you who've been to any kind of school kind of know that. But certain groups, organizations start identifying you as certain things because you're in that group. And whether it's fair or not, whether that prejudicial type of a decision-making is, is accurate or not, it doesn't really matter because you become identified because you're in that group. And being in that group starts forming friendships and relationships that are going to last forever. If you've ever been a part of a group organization, whether it be a fraternity, sorority, or social club like I was at Freed Hardeman, it becomes something that is a lasting 
decision in your life. And when you're a freshman going through Pledge Week, you probably don't really understand that. You don't really understand the ultimate repercussions way down the road. But once I was in Chi Beta, those people became my close friends because I was in that group. I was friends with others. I had relationships with others. But they began defining kind of who I was because I was in that club. When you think about that phrase, in Christ, when you think about what exactly that means to be a part of uh, Christ and be a part of those things, it it has this preposition, and I'm not an English person. I see Leah back there. I could ask her to expound on us the importance of prepositions and phrases and in sentences, but I'm not going to do that today, and and I don't see Miss Ray here either to ask her that question, but Prepositions, of course, we always heard about prepositional phrases, but that's ultimately what you see here in this phrase, being in Christ. It is a prepositional phrase of, of a connecting word, being in, which is a preposition, and you have the object of the preposition. If I were to map this phrase, that's the two words that you would have. You have the preposition and the object of the preposition. And what's interesting when you just talk about what, what is the usefulness of a preposition, it's amazing to consider what that one little word could do in a sentence. You know, if you were to just take two different words such as gorilla and cheese, if you said the gorilla is in the cheese, well, that's kind of strange. Well, you could say the gorilla is behind the cheese. You could talk about the gorilla is with the cheese. You have two different objects, and that conjunction well, that preposition, I mean, joins those two type of, of con- connecting words in some form or fashion to convey some type of an idea to us. And that's really what this word here in this preposition does for us, is it connects, it is, is a connecting term with Christ and anything else that's put with it. So as we go through this study, what we're going to see is a connection of Christ with everything else whether it's blessings in Christ, whether it's salvation in Christ, whether it's a new creation in Christ. You see the connecting because of this one little two-letter word, in. In. There's a lot of big emphases that can make, that can be made with this little word. And that's what I hope we can look at in the Scripture as we go through this lessons, these lessons this quarter because it creates a, an understanding for us that ultimately we're able to relate to in our lives. We're, we're able to consider these, the impact of Christ and blessings because of the end. It's one thing to think about what are spiritual blessings. What, what are they? How can we obtain them? But with this phrase, it helps us understand a little more clearly that without being in Christ, we don't have those spiritual blessings. So we're going to be able to go through this and this study, looking at this little prepositional phrase uh, throughout this whole quarter of study to see just how important it is for us to see uh, this connecting of Christ and all these other very important concepts for us in our spiritual lives. It's not always used in the same way, but, but the word in is one that's kind of limiting uh, in with respect to how it can be used. Uh, but the, the use of this word is going to be able to convey to us the various meanings and ultimately, uh, you know, the applications. This phrase together with other words, and I'm sorry it cut off there. This phrase together with other words helps convey to us the meanings and the applications that we're going to be able to make as Christians. Because we're going to say that the foundational principle with regard to in Christ in this phrase 
is that it is a positional phrase. It is a locational type of a phrase. When you talk about uh, the monies in the bank, you're talking about the fact that your money, very important, very useful to you, something that you're going to be able to need in, in your everyday walk of life, it is not necessarily in your possession. It is in the bank's possession. It gives you that positional understanding of where that important thing is. So you're going to see as we move on and as we think about the, the, this phrase of in Christ, it is going to help convey to us a very important principle that these things which we can enjoy, these things which we can uh, have in our lives, these things which we can experience come from us being placed in a very specific and a very important position. Consider the, some of the uh, examples that I've got here on the screen for you this morning. You see, uh, there, you, you can just do a Google, by the way, or you could do a, a word search on your uh, Bible program. You're going to find almost 100 phrases where in Christ is used, 100 times in the Bible in the New Testament. If you do another search for in him, which, by the way, the him would be Christ in those passages, but you're using that um, uh, adjective. What's that word? Him is, uh, anyway, it's a different type of word. Pronoun, thank you, yes. You're using that pronoun in the lieu of Jesus' name there, but if you do that search, you're going to have about another 80-something times it's used primarily in the Gospels because Christ himself talks about being, you know, believing in him and those that believe in him, uh, you know, obtain these type of things. So you have hundreds of verses to look at where this phraseology is used placing the individual or placing this concept in the position of Christ, alongside, along with, again, those are other prepositions. But that concept of being in Christ is a positional type of word showing position or location. Look, Romans chapter 3, verse 24, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 16, verses 3 and verse 9, it talks about there, Paul talks about his fellow workers in Christ. So where are those workers located? They're located in Christ. What does that mean? Well, we're going to look into that as we can consider these phrases as we consider these concepts throughout this quarter of study, you think about the passage in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, blessed, blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. That's going to be next week's lesson, by the way, looking at every spiritual blessing in Christ. You know, consider the importance of that. If you want to be blessed, where are those blessings found? Well, we're given the location here with this prepositional phrase. They're located in Christ. Well, where is that? How do we get those things? How do we get in this position? How do we get in this location to be able to obtain those spiritual blessings? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, uh, heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, if there is any encouragement in Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ. Now, think about the concepts that are involved here, the churches that are in Christ. This church, its location, its position is important. Why? Because it's in Christ. You can look around us in this world today. There are a lot of different people who claim to be religious. They claim to be Christians. In fact, that word I think is tossed around way too frequently, and it's been downplayed and, and really watered down by the world around us because everybody supposedly is a Christian if you believe in Christ. Well, that's not what the Bible talks about, by the way. In fact, Christians only use three times. This phrase is used, I said already, hundreds of times. 
And so this is probably more descriptive of what a Christian really should be, and that's in Christ, in Christ. Because you have all these things and these concepts that are brought about because of the place and the location of the individual. If you look, uh, there's a man by the name of John Stott. I don't want to get into all of his uh, necessarily writings and his beliefs. I don't agree with everything he says, but he did write this. I think this is a very good quote. It says, to be in Christ does not mean to be inside Christ as tools are in a box or our clothes are in a closet, but to be organically united to Christ as a limb is in the body or a branch is in a tree. It is this personal relationship with Christ that is the distinctive mark of his authentic followers. You know, we're just not some tool. We're just not placed in some, you know, location but it's a connection that is brought about because we are in Christ. And so as we go through this study, it's, it's important for us to understand that it's not just us being placed in some minute location, but it is, it is a connection that we have. It is a relationship that we have with Christ that becomes this distinctive mark of those who are really authentic followers. If you're really following after Christ, you're going to be a part of him. Think about the vine and the branches. That's a great example. And Jesus used that example and used that uh, somewhat of a parable in the New Testament and talking about that, that they are the vines and, and the branches. And, and if you're, you're cut off and pruned and thrown into the fire, those kind of a concepts should start ringing out in your mind. If you're in Christ, you're part of that. You're part of who Christ is. You're part of his structure. You're part of his organization. You're part of, of who the essence of Christ is. And it's not just sitting around like a bump on a log, like a tool in a toolbox. But in fact, you have this close connection, so much so that you are considered to be a part of Christ part of him, organically almost. Now, of course, organically is a, a physical type of a word, but we understand that kind of a concept where, where you have emerging so much. It's kind of like we've been spliced into Christ uh, with regard to being in Christ. We, we, we are part of another tree. We're part of another organism. But because we have changed, because we have obeyed, because we have done what is necessary to become part of Christ, to become in Christ, we have been spliced into his life. We have been spliced into the very essence of who Christ is so that we become a part of Christ. We are in Christ and our lives actually show things. Think about a couple implications, a couple of implications that we have if we are in fact being in Christ. A couple of implications that, that you can see with regard to the Scriptures are, one, if you are in Christ, there is a sense of personal fulfillment. Personal fulfillment. If you were to go back and look in the Old Testament as Adam and Eve fell prey to sin, as they faltered and succumbed to the temptation of Satan in the Garden of Eden, it's almost as though something were taken from them, which in, in fact it was, right? Uh, God told them because they ate of the tree, uh, the knowledge of good and evil, that, that they would surely die. And in fact, you see, taken from them would be the, the ability to, to be eternally with God, without suffering, without pain, without having to experience all the things that unfortunately we have to experience today because sin entered into this world. And, and what you see is that there is always, there seems to be a part of us that always reaches out, 
that, that strives for, that, that tries to grope after who God is. And it, it reminds me of Acts chapter 17 when Paul's up there on, on, uh, in Athens, up there on the, the, the Acropolis and, and looking down and seeing all the statues. He looks around and, and he tries to talk to them about who God really is because they really seem to be uh, just lost. They've got a God to this, they've got a God to that, they've got a God to this concept or, or this thought process or maybe this aspect of their lives, whether it be war or whether it be love or those kind of things that are, that are just entrenched in their lives there in, in, in Athens. And he looks out and he sees this, this, temp, this statue to the unknown God. And if you really look at the historical significance of this they wanted to have this statue up because they didn't want to offend a god maybe out there that they had left out inadvertently you know being a polytheistic society you know they were trying to make sure they pleased everybody so they were trying to please every god that was out there and so you see in acts chapter 17 where paul uses this opportunity to really talk about the very nature of both god and man and so there's an aspect there that, that man has this longing to to worship and to really reach out to God. And Paul describes God's presence as being not far off. And in fact, it says in, in uh, verse 24, it says, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he's Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served as by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man, Having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. God wants to have a relationship for us. And most importantly, I think if you really think about it, we want to have a relationship with God. We want to have some type of a, a meaningful life, understanding that we are not always the ones in control. You go around and talk to any atheist and a lot of the things that they would throw out to you is the disconnect that they believe that if there was a God, it shows a disconnect in this world because it doesn't, why, would he, why would he let the, the shooting happen in Florida two weeks ago if God really cared? You know, why would God allow children to suffer? Why would God allow war to go on if God really cared? But in fact, they like to throw that out for us, but when you get down to it, man has an innate sense of wanting to have a meaningful relationship with his creator. That's why we strive for answers to questions. That's why even the atheists struggle to find responses to other types of arguments with regard to the way things are in life. And so there's a personal fulfillment uh, that is there by trying to reconcile and try to create a relationship there uh, among man, or between man and between God. You know, all around us, we see people that are, feel alienated in this world. They feel alone in this world. It leads to things such as abuse. It leads, things, leads to drug addiction. It leads to all types of other things where people are trying to fill their lives 
with something else to fill that void when in fact God would fill it if they just reached out for him. There are all these individuals out there that are missing the fact that in fact Jesus is in fact the solution to that personal fulfillment in their life. Think back if you can over in John. I know you all have had a study on John that's gone on for several quarters in here and Scott did a wonderful job with that. But John chapter 6 verse 35 kind of underscores this when Jesus himself was talking to those around him considering that what the people needed and what the people wanted. And, and you see that there in, in verse 35, Jesus' response. But look up above here with regard to the, the people. There's a discussion that, that Jesus had with his disciples and, and uh, with those that were around listening. And he talks about the idea of, of seeking after him because of signs and wonders. And they said, what shall we do, verse 28, so that we may work the works of God. And Jesus, of course, said, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. And they said, okay, well, what then do you do for a sign so we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. You know, what are we supposed to have as proof here, Jesus? What are we supposed to have in our lives? In verse 35, or verse 32, it says, truly, truly, I'll say to you, it's not Moses who's given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. And Jesus says this. I love these I am statements. <laughs> That's a great study, isn't it, Mike? Uh, when you think about what Jesus says that he is, and this is one of the wonderful things. If you're hungry, what do you want? Something to eat. You want something to fill your belly so that you're no longer groaning and your, your tummy's no longer making that, that hungry noise anymore, right? You can only go so long sometimes before your stomach starts speaking to you. Spiritually speaking, there's only so long you can go without having that spiritual food necessary for you. And Jesus says, verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will no longer hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I say to you, you have seen me, and you don't believe Echoes back a couple chapters, right? John chapter 4. When you think about what he said over there and talking to the, the woman at the well and that whole spiritual discussion that they had with, that she, he had with the woman from Samaria there. And, and Jesus, of course, came to the, wall, the well to, and said, give me something to drink. And, and she, of course, complies. She gives him something there and, and talks about, you know, the idea of, of concept of spiritual or living water. And Jesus shows to her that if you have a need, if you have this, this true thirst, it can be quenched by one alone. And that's Jesus. Because Jesus is the living water. Jesus is the one who, once you drink of him, you will never thirst again. She wanted to know, where do you get this water? Where, where do you get this living water, she said in verse 11. And he says, verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will uh, this water, being the physical water, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. But the water I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. There is a true fulfillment that is implicated by us being in Christ. We have this spiritual fulfillment. We have this ability to be able to look into our lives and to see that personally speaking, we can have a relationship with God that will impact the rest of our lives. The implication of being in Christ should impact your entire life. 
It should be something personally fulfilling. It should be something that helps encapsulate you to try and prevent those things from this world, those snares from the devil, those temptations, those negative things that are all around us in this world from affecting you personally because you have this personal relationship with God. Consider some of the other passages that I've thrown up on the screen. And again, this is in no ways uh, all of the passages. But look in, in Romans chapter 6, verse 11. Romans 6, which we will get into uh, later on, but for purposes of this right now, that uh, Paul says there, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Dead to sin, now alive. Think of the personal impact that should make on our lives. Think of the the effect that that should have as we live every day. Think of the fulfillment that you should have personally as you consider that your placement in Christ makes you alive instead of dead. No one likes a funeral. In fact, most of us are very saddened when we go to funerals. There are some funerals that I have gone to that I have been crying with tears, but I have been overjoyed at. And you know why? And that's because of this kind of a concept here that I hope that's the way that, that I feel at the end of my life, whenever that may be, that I hope my family feels that way. Because there should be a personal fulfillment there, a recognition and understanding that your life is complete. Your life is fulfilled when you have Christ as a part of it. When you are placed, when you are spliced, whenever you are granted that connection and that location of being in Christ, it should fulfill you personally because it impacts you, makes you understand that no longer are you dead, but in fact you are alive. Flip over to chapter 8, chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, this is kind of closely connected there as you think about the impact of sin in life. Therefore, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Talk about personal fulfillment. Who likes to be condemned? When I sat in the courtroom on Friday and the verdict was read that the guy that I had tried all week long for robbery, for kidnapping, and for attempted murder was found guilty by this jury. The jury, I told them in my closing statement, I said, I want you to stand up and point your finger and say you're guilty. And in essence, they were condemning him for his actions that day. When the court stood up and, and looked at him and said, you know, that the jury has read their verdict, I concur with the verdict that the facts support that verdict, and I also, the court hereby, finds you guilty of robbery in the first degree, kidnapping in the first degree, and attempted murder of Mr. Justin Bicknell. He stood condemned. I can tell you, I don't think he liked that. I looked over at the defendant, and his face was white as a sheet. I don't know if he thought he was going to get off. I, we can talk about that all day long. Uh, I don't know why we even had the trial. Um, but no one likes to be condemned, do you? I mean, it's a terrible feeling. It's that, that pit in the stomach. It's that punch to the gut that you feel as though you have faltered and you have failed. I, I feel that way sometimes when Monica may make an offhanded comment that I failed to do something. Scott, you know how that feels, right? Um, but... Uh, Monica's not in here this quarter. She's going to go to the marriage class and tell me what I need to do to be better. Um, but, uh, you know, you feel that way sometimes where you have just faltered as a father or as a husband sometimes. It's just the way life is. And most times she doesn't even mean it that way. I just take it that way. But I feel as though I stand condemned 
because I have failed to do something. Nobody likes to be condemned. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 tells us that in Christ, there's no condemnation. What a wonderful feeling that would be. What a a great personal fulfillment that would be, that you walk around and you understand that there is no condemnation. You are not held liable. You are not being faulted. You are not being, anything being held to your account because you are placed in the location, in the arms, in the life, in the the essence of Christ Jesus. When we are in Christ, we do not experience condemnation. What a wonderful fulfillment. And one more, I just want to point out before we move on, and as y'all know, I get caught up, never get done with a lesson, but we're going to try to get through this. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 18. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 18. Those, uh, let's just start in verse 16, just so we can get a context here. But for, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if, de- if Christ has been, not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Talking about the importance of the resurrection here in chapter 15. You know, if Christ hasn't even ri- risen from the dead, then really your faith's worthless. And so it's kind of a proof with regard to the resurrection of Christ and the importance thereof. And, and that's pretty much you can't be a Christian. If Christ didn't raise from the dead, there's no gospel of Christ. There's no you know, hope of salvation because Christ's resurrection would be false. Paul's saying it's not false. Christ did rise from the dead. And it says, verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith will be worthless. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But, but, now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Personal fulfillment to me is the concept that when I live my life and the things that I do and the choices that I make, the places that I determine to go, the the sleep that I give up to do things in life are for a reason. And we realize that when we are in Christ here, we have hope. We have hope. We're going to talk about hope in Christ. That's going to be one of the phrases we look at as we go through this study in this series. But that really falls right under here that we have personal fulfillment because being placed in Christ does not give us that condemnation. Being placed in Christ, we actually have a a concept here of, of being the first fruits. Because when we fall asleep, by the way, that means dying. When we die in Christ, we have the fulfillment of knowing Our life's not in vain. What about another impact of this phrase and and being placed in Christ? What is another implication of being in Christ? Well, second, one of the other implications that are brought to light as you think about these different phrases and the, the concepts and the passages, when we are in Christ, we are able to enjoy brotherly unity. If you ever traveled around anywhere and you've tried to find a congregation of the Lord's saints to meet with, you walk in and, and you are among brethren, you experience this feeling of fellowship and of unity that's really indescribable to me. One of the things that I'm most thankful of my parents growing up is that when we went on any kind of trip or when we went on any kind of travel, we still maintain that purpose to try and worship when we would have worshiped at home because, you know, our elders had, had set aside that as a time of importance for worship, whether it be Sunday night or Wednesday night, that even though the scriptures may not say you got to go Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, you know, we saw that importance. And what that led to is I traveled around, and any of you who have traveled or lived in other locations or other places 
Those who are in Christ gives you this feeling of brotherly unity. That you walk into a place that you truly feel as though they are family and you don't even know them. It's an awesome feeling, really, to have that kind of a feeling and a kind of concept. When you go halfway around the world, and Scott, when we went to Ukraine, it's amazing you walk in and people you haven't even met, you feel as though you are kindred spirits already. Why? Because of this concept. Being in Christ creates a brotherly unity, a unification of the saints. It creates a unification of believers, of those who have the common principles and common goals. Being in Christ promotes that true fellowship of what Christ wants it to be. And so you can go anywhere you are and find Christians of like-minded faith and experience this. The implications of being in Christ extend to this brotherly unity and the concepts that we see there. Look in Romans chapter 12, flip back there real quick. You see this really, the undertones throughout Paul's epistles as he talks to those who he loves and cares for. You see what this meant. When Paul went on his missionary journeys, he was able to go around and be with people who he had known for a very short time but already felt like they were family. Already felt like family. Look at Romans chapter 12, verse 5, and it says, uh, we'll start in verse 4. For just as we have many members in one body and all the members don't have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Flip over the next chapter, or a couple chapters over, I'm sorry, chapter 16, verses one, uh, 3 through 10, as, as Paul was concluding his letter to the Roman brethren there, he starts talking about greeting this person, greeting that person. And he talks about how wonderful they are, but greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ, who risked their necks, who... who, who for my life, risk their own necks, and for whom I not only give thanks, but also the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that's in their house, Epinatus, my beloved, who is the first convert of Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who worked hard, Adronachias, uh, and Junius, my kinsmen, and my fellow prisoners who were outstanding among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. Keep reading, and you're going to see that phrase used there. There is a kindredness. There is an association. There is a brotherly love, a brotherly unity that's brought about by being placed as being a part of Christ. Look in Galatians chapter 3. Probably no other passage really kind of conveys this passage as, as well as, as uh, Galatians does. But, of course, we know in Galatians, Paul is there talking to a mixed group of people. Uh, and, and as he's thinking about those who are Jews and Gentiles, those of a, a merged body of believers there, he points out to them in Galatians chapter 3 the importance of being in Christ and the impact that being in Christ brings to a body of believers. There in verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's no, neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Think about the unity that should be brought about. Now, again, should be questioning you in your mind. If there's not brotherly unity, what does that mean? <laughs> That's kind of the obvious uh, difference there. We'll try to get into that a little bit as we look at the study. But if we are truly in Christ together, you're in Christ, you're in Christ, you're in Christ, you're in Christ, I'm in Christ. We should have this brotherly unity that really expounds beyond description. And so the implication of this in our lives is, is truly great. The implication on faithfulness, on attendance, the 
know, we talk about attendance and how important it is to be here and, and how important it is to, to come and be a part of the church family at Dalrada. Why is it important? Well, it's because of this. If we're all in Christ together, it's so important to get together and encourage one another. It is paramount in our lives that we create and maintain the unity of the brethren because we are in Christ together. We, we push each other. We, we encourage each other. We help hold each other up in those times when we are truly in need. And, and unfortunately, so many times we forget that concept in our lives because we get so caught up in our own troubles, our own problems. We forget that in Christ there's a brotherly unity that we can lean upon one another. We can fall upon each other's shoulders to cry. We can stand together hand in hand confronting the problems of our lives. If there's addiction, we can do it together. If there's sin, we can handle it together. If there's problems in the home, we can be there to strengthen and encourage one another so that you're not alone. But all that happens, the implications occur because we are in Christ. Because of that specific position and that important place of being, we're able to enjoy that. I don't have time for the rest of the scriptures. I hope you jot them down. But you can look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Philippians 4, verse 7, Philippians 4, 21, 1 Thessalonians 2, 14, Hebrews 3, 14, 1 Peter 5, 14. All of those are going to underscore the importance of being in Christ because of the relationships that it brings about in the Lord's church. It brings about a brotherly unity that we can enjoy wherever we are. Whatever situation we find ourselves in, that brotherly unity exists. You know, it's amazing to me when I travel around the state, I get the joy of seeing different people. But you know, it's funny. I was down executing some rest warrants in Selma a couple of weeks ago or months ago. Look across the parking lot, you know, lo and behold, who I see? Brian Drakowski walking across. And Brian's back in the back so I can talk about this. But I was like, why is Brian in Selma in the middle of the week at a location that's kind of, I mean, it's, it's a training location for correctional workers. And lo and behold, I found out he was there to monitor their training. But didn't know, but I looked across the way, I saw him. He looked across the way and saw me. He's like, why is Cackleman here? You know, why is he in this location? But I will say, when you're out and about and you see your brethren, even outside these walls, it's so encouraging. And all that comes about because you're in Christ together. Think about the third implication real quickly, and, and I don't want to dwell too long because I'm about to lose this uh, time period here, but think about the radical transformation that is implicated by being in Christ. You, can't, you can see passage after passage, scripture after scripture, talking about the concept of once you were this way, but now we're in Christ, we're this way. There is a change, a transformation that comes about, and the implications in our lives should be phenomenal with regard to transforming our lives because of this change in position of our spiritual lives. We are one way, but instead we think another way, which is exactly contrary to the way the world thinks. The world exalts one thing over another. The, the, the world looks around us, and they want to try and, and promote this thing over that thing. The, the world admires the powerful, the successful, the brash, the achievers, the go-getters. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit who are humble before God. You know, you see that drastic comparison and the transformation that should occur from those who are out of Christ to those who are in Christ in our lives. The concept of being in Christ is so important, so important. Next week, I want to look at the, the blessings. All spiritual blessings are found in Christ. And I want to pick up there next week. Thank you for your kind attention this morning.